Hello, everyone. Welcome to Alien Crash Site, a speculative conversation series from the Santa Fe Institute. This podcast is loosely based on and very much in tribute to the 70s Soviet science fiction novel Roadside Picnic, which was written by Arkady and Boris Drugatsky. It was later adapted into the film Stalker by Tarkovsky, and both works are frequently cited in this adventure. This week, we've brought Van Savage into the zone. Van is a professor in the UCLA Departments of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, as well as Computational Medicine. He is also external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute, where he serves on our science steering committee. His work covers a broad range of interests. He researches metabolic scaling, consumer resource interactions, rates of evolution, the effects of global warming on diverse ecosystems, tumor growth, and sleep. Now, we at the Santa Fe Institute are in the middle of a five-year research theme on complex time called Aging, Adaptation, and the Arrow of Time. This research is funded by the James S. McDonnell Foundation. And complex time is a multifaceted research area, as you can imagine. Van is the co-organizer for the topical track on sleep. He, along with Alex Herman from the University of Minnesota, are looking at sleep as it occurs across our lifetimes and across different species to try to figure out why it is that we all do it. And they've made some fascinating conclusions that we will discuss in this episode. And after that, Van reemerges from the zone with not one, but two alien artifacts. A triumphant trip indeed. So without any further delay, let's forge ahead. I'm Caitlin McShay. This is Alien Crash Site. I hope you're well rested because the zone is a dangerous place. So keep your eyes open. Thanks for stepping into the zone. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Caitlin? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a, a busy week, but it's lovely here in Santa Fe. How's it in LA? It's pretty good. It was actually what people here consider hot yesterday and cold today, because LA has a very near temperature range of what they think is. It's true, yeah. Uh, cold <laughs> in LA is probably my ideal. <laughs> but, um, but it's pretty good. It's sunny at least now. It was cloudy this morning. So we have you here for a variety of reasons. You are external faculty at SFI, but you work at UCLA and you are doing a, a wide range of different researches, but specifically in our complex time, you've been doing a lot of work on sleep, the importance of sleep. And I think that it would be really fun to talk about sleep in the context of this interplanetary framework, because you know I'm thinking about things like long-term duration space flight. So yeah, so as we, as we think about things like the rover and Ingenuity doing all of these really cool things on Mars, and we start looking at other possibly habitable planets or icy moons, we think about how long it'll take people to get there and wouldn't it be so nice if we slept the whole way? And so um, could you take a moment to explain sleep on, in the Earth sense, uh, why it is that we do it? It seems sort of like a wasteful <laughs> thing to do with a third of our lives, but clearly there's some reason for it. Right. I think I think that more like a stronger argument than that is essential that just we do it is that Pretty much every animal that's been studied carefully does it. So it's a really like hugely pervasive phenomenon that clearly evolved a long, long time ago before us. And I, I don't know if you've seen this recently, but it was in the news that this octopus shows two stages of sleep and turns colors. And it looks like that independently involved as two stages of sleep. 
So it's clear like some strong evolutionary pressure to have sleep. So it must serve some function. And that is what a lot of my research has been. It's how can I actually use a comparative approach, not just focusing on humans, but across like all the different animals we see to think about what is that, you know, pressure or need for sleep. And I think the main, what we've concluded from our research, which I think is pretty, you know, I personally think is pretty compelling and strong. <laughs> but you're not that, biased. <laughs> that for, um, at least for adults, sleep is mainly for repair in the brain. And I'll say that for mammals, at least. I think it's broader than mammals, but at least for mammals. But the idea is, you know, when we're active during the day, our metabolism is uh, going strong or creating lots of power and that creates byproducts that can do damage to DNA or vessel walls. Um, that's one of the things people about antioxidants to counteract some of the free radicals produced by metabolism. And the brain especially has the highest metabolism of an organ in the body. And neurons don't get replaced like most cells in the body. So it's not like they can just grow a new one to replace it. So the brain especially is under intense pressure to keep those neurons maintained, at least healthy enough to be functioning so we can process the environment and remember things. So you need this repair feature for the brain. And that's kind of what the sleep does is you go offline and it's doing this repair process while you're asleep that apparently can't do while you're awake, which that's an interesting question because why can't we do it while you're awake? And that's sort of for adults, but then the interesting thing that we just even more recently found yeah. is if you look at sleep across development, so going from like birth to an adult, sleep actually for the first, the early stage, and I'll say exactly here in a second, if you look at the data there, that it's completely different trends for how sleep changes with body size or brain size. At first we were really confused by it, but if you instead test and develop a theory to say that sleep is mainly about neural reorganization. So as you learn, you have to prune away connections or grow new connections to like learn the world around you. That seems to be what sleep is primarily for in that early stage. And what's, I think one of the most surprising things to me is that it's that early stage for humans means about two and a half years old. Like that transition doesn't happen when you're like 13 or 16 or 18, it happens at two and a half. So there's a huge transition in sleep and sort of the function of sleep and, and, and brain functioning at two and a half. And even though in terms of the dominant function, I've cleanly split it into, I think sleep probably in time has developed like piggyback functions that are on top of those for immune systems or health. And you're probably always doing a little bit of everything, but those are sort of like the dominant. So I've got a couple of things to say. When I was reading through the papers and I saw that the line is at two and a half, I was so surprised to see that it happened so quickly. You would think there's a lot more to build before there is to repair. So I found that really alarming. Much more respect for my two and a half year old nephew. It's like, you're doing important things right now. The other thing I wanted to talk about, um, you know, you said that the highest metabolism within mammals is the brain. And I guess I, I know we'll probably switch to scaling for a bit here too. So the brain isn't larger than the lungs, but maybe it's more densely packed or is it higher in mass? Right. So, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I think it's, it is, I mean, compared to the lungs, for example, lungs are mainly like, even though it's a big volume, a big chunk out of your body, most of that is air. So surface area is like a relatively small amount of mass and cells to support. And the brain, on the other hand, is like, it's, it is densely packed. But on top of that, you're sending signals all the time. And those signals are basically electrical and chemical signals. And that is very costly. We're doing lots of processing in the brain to keep our body running, to the environment, to think about what we want for lunch. And all those things, you have to send signals, like electrical and chemical signals, which take a lot of energy. 
And in the brain, for example, there are axons that sort of go off each neuron to go talk to the other neurons. In a lot of cases, that axon becomes myelinated, which just means it has a layer of fat, which allows the signal to go faster. So like, for example, for our whole body metabolism and scaling theory, what's optimized is sort of your ability to do that and save energy for other things like reproducing or eating or all kinds of things like that. But for the brain, I think it's optimized. And actually, I'm working with a graduate student that this now writing a paper. It's more optimized for like maximizing the speed of getting a signal somewhere, even if that's really energetically costly. Yeah, it's like so, a high functioning processor. It's like it's like a concentration of all of that. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. It almost seems in some of the popular science descriptions of this two and a half year old building versus post two and a half year old repair phrases like tiny things sleep the most. And I wonder if that's the same across body mass of animals. So that, that could be a cute thing to say about babies, but is it true that the mouse sleeps more than the whale, et cetera? That is, that is absolutely true. So, that, so for example, for a baby to an adult, that might be more like comparing a, a cat to an adult human or a dog to that human. And there, if you compare like a cat and a dog don't sleep the same amount as a, as a baby. So it's not the exact same numbers, but the general just qualitative trend is true that like, a mouse does sleep more than an elephant. And in fact, an elephant only sleeps about three hours a night. And like a whale, for example, like especially the huge whales, like blue whales, sleep maybe an hour and a half per day. And also what's fascinating there is they sleep half the brain of the time, so they have to keep swimming along. That's my next question is, does it differ between land animals and, and water animals since there's constant movement? <laughs> <laughs> there is. And, it, and the, way, the main adaptation they've had for that is to just sleep half the brain at a time. So half the brain stays awake and keeps swimming and half the brain sleeps. And the other thing that's true for not just marine mammals, but also, and probably other things too, for some like sea migratory birds that migrate like long, long times and huge distances, they'll also do that. They've also evolved to sleep half the brain at a time. Hmm. That seems sort of maybe what one might have to do in zero gravity. Let's say you're like tethered to a ship, or maybe you're not, and you're just floating around in the free space. You're probably not sleeping. <laughs> I mean, I guess <laughs> you are kind of gently carried along, so you can. It might be very comfortable, but and that uh, for a big thing to sleep, that sleep is that um, lions actually are, and that, you know, not just lions. The lions are a good example. Um, sleep way, way more than you would think based on their size, and there's lots of theories for that. Like you know, potentially. They're the top predators. They don't have to worry about being eaten so they can just spend their time sleeping away. Or they're just, you know, efficient hunters or their food's like higher, you know, higher proteins, so it's more efficient. That's just something to think about. Like it relieves some of the pressure so they can sleep a lot more. But like you said, like you think that would be a waste, right? If they don't need to sleep that much, why do they why do they then add on all that extra sleep? I mean, well, it's 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 two things, right? If they're they're, they're very successful predators. They're eating large quantities of like high protein. So they probably have all of this metabolic energy to make use of. And maybe it's good to put that to sleep than running or what have you. But also I like the idea, you know, the king of the jungle having all of this leisure time. It, it, it maps directly onto like those who are wealthy or royal, et cetera. So that's really funny. I, mean, I think that is the uh, tempting way to think about it. It is. <laughs> yeah. What about like hibernating animals? We've talked about this, you know, over a drink in the past, but but what about those animals that sleep in, in chunks of their life as opposed to daily? So actually one of the things, so I'll do I'll first take tackle uh, hibernation. So hibernation, people often think of as sleep, but it, it actually isn't And when you're hibernating, they um they go into this really low metabolically active state, they lower their temperature, it is to save energy to less food. 
but they're actually not sleeping. So for example, when like a bear gets out of hibernation, it's obviously starving, but it's also super tired. So one of the first things that we'll do is sleep. I mean, and sleep a lot trying to make up like a sleep deficit. Yeah. So hibernation apparently they're not sleeping much. But there is the chunk thing too. Like the the other issue is like the the chunking. Like for example, most animals don't sleep in chunks. They don't sleep in like one chunk per day. They divide it up. And if you look at um human societies, at least the studies that have come out recently for like hunter gatherers and things like that, they also sleep not not consolidated or chunk. They like spread it out in different times during the day. And so it seems like that's just like a modern society thing that we've like chunked it into one one time slot. Huh. I like that. I like that. It turns out that a function potentially of sleeping is like uh, repairing of all of these neural pathways because I do a lot of it. And so uh, my husband is not the best sleeper, and I am. And now I can tell him that it's because I'm doing good work for myself, and that's great. Yeah, no, I think it's totally true. It's actually made me feel um, even more important to get good sleep. Like I mean, I always slept, but like if I've been sleeping a long time, I figure I need it, so I don't feel guilty about it. That's right. Well, so in order to study this, you clearly have to do something like research trials. There's got to be some clinical elements to this kind of research. And, and you work with uh, Alex, I think, in that capacity. Is that right? Well, Alex does. He actually is working in psychiatry and he is doing some studies related to like okay. definitely the brain and epilepsy and maybe some related to sleep. But sleep isn't his main thing. And I don't do the clinical trials myself, but we do right. get data with people who do or people who do. It's like Gina Poe, who's in this recent paper, she does a lot of studies in rats. I'm talking to people now who do studies in voles. I knew, you know, I've known people on Harvard Medical School who do these sleep studies with humans in these really um, intense environments. And I think that, um, so there are a lot of people out there doing those studies, lucky for me and for us. And that's how yeah. I was able to get data to analyze. And across mammals too, there's not been as much study. I mean, more and more now there's some studies in fruit flies and other organisms, but it's been slower to like go outside of the animals. No, that makes sense. Um, it's also high stakes, right? I can imagine, and maybe we should talk about this, given the importance of the function like sleeping, clearly something bad must happen when you don't get that sleep. When I'm, when I, that's why I'm cranky and I'm also like poor at performance, like looking at the voles and the mice um, and larger mammals, it's, it would be hard to do it to a person. It would almost be like torture. So can you talk about some of the tangible effects that come from a lack of sleeping that you've seen? Well, like for the voles at least, the person who's saying voles, they basically have shown that in, in early development, if you are not getting as much sleep, it looks like it affects your ability to like bond and socialize um, with your, <laughs> your mother or others, right? Like rats and things like that. There used to be these studies. I don't, I don't think they have them anymore. They're kind of cool to read about. But they kept the rats awake for long, long periods of time. And the rats would eventually die. I mean, my reading of that probably is that they were dying from lack of sleep. Wow. But you know, there's always this confounding factor, like maybe it's because of like how you're keeping them awake and what was that was going on with that. And in humans, you know, I think the world record, I can't remember the guy's name who had, who had this. He did it, it's sort of, you know, it wasn't done to him. He deprived himself of sleep. He tried to the Guinness record, I think, and it's part of a, maybe a high school or college study. And I mean, he, he was delusional, like delirious. Like he was having like full-on hallucinations after a few days. And there's tons of studies that show for like learning the memory. Even though we're, you know, adults, I say it's mainly about reorganization learning in kids. You know, even for adults, if you're getting lack of sleep, you don't learn things as well, you don't remember things as well. You know, driving a manipulation, it's almost like being um, intoxicated. Like it's, it's a big effect. Is there any research about something like this cognitive uh, capacity drop? Like maybe keeping a mouse alive and seeing how poorly it solves a maze or something to that effect? They do do that, yeah, exactly. But they do, there's lots of running of mazes with 
rest, seeing how they do after sleep versus not sleep. Yeah. Moreover, they can show things like that the they have certain neurons that fire when they're running the maze. And then at night when they sleep, you can see the same as like neurons fire in the same sequence. So they're clearly like replaying the maze in their heads as they, I mean, I say clearly, can't ask it, but it seems strongly like they're replaying the maze in their head as they sleep. And probably, you know, dreaming about um, the maze running is a way to like learn about it. Okay, pin, because I definitely want to return to dreaming because I, I think that that's a hugely important element of the experience of sleep. But before we get there, I wonder if there is such a thing as too much sleep. So while we're talking about the impacts of not getting sleep, the deprivation of sleep, as I think about putting humans to sleep to handle four years in a, oh, in a yeah. tube to go to space, what, what might come as a negative for something like oversleeping, if you have a sense? So yeah, so I guess there's two things there. One is, before I get to that sort of long-term sleeping, like for space travel, we hear eight hours, but I think six to nine hours is kind of like this considered a normal range. But um, I mean, there are, you know, studies where if you're getting more than nine hours, it's often like a sign of depression. Like maybe that's a symptom of depression and maybe sleeping too much could actually be related to feeling depressed somehow. Although there's, there's also just natural variation. But for the long-term sleep, like for astronauts or things like that. Right, and this is speculative, so, everyone. My thing there is that the problem would be like just your muscles atrophy, right? That you would just like lose muscle tone. But, you know, maybe there, you know, since we're really being thinking futuristically now, <laughs> I think um, if they did that, you know, maybe you could do things like have electrical stimulation or signaling through your muscles to have them contract and instead of like exercising the muscles as you sleep to keep them around. Yeah. And then also, I guess, um, I don't know, if you woke up after that long of sleep, there'd be like this time lapse or time hole. I think that would be cognitively weird. I don't know how damaging it would be, but it would certainly be like a weird thing to adjust to. Think of how confusing it would be if you haven't like used your brain in a sort of rational waking sense. Now you're atrophied too, unless you've got like all the little, you know, stickers making your muscles go. And you're arriving to a totally new world where there's no habitat. It's like, uh, it, it would be quite jarring, I think. I also wonder, as you said about the rats that are dreaming of the maze and building new architectures in their, in their brain as a consequence of learning, maybe long duration sleep would, would almost be detrimental to that sort, like maybe, pathways would dissolve in certain ways. Like you wouldn't be building anything new. And so there's like this obsolescence of the architecture that you already possess, perhaps. Actually, I think that's a, that's a, a that's true. That's a real concern. Like there's an, in a neuroscience, there's this maxim that says neurons that fire together, wire together. So ideas, if you're using it, um, it, it wires, right? But if you stuff for a long time and you get stuck in a dream state about like, you know, your childhood home, and that's all you're stimulating. And you're not stimulating the stuff you usually do during the day. I mean, I think it would be a concern to like lose some of those connections to some of those neurons. Yeah. I also think it'd be tricky to think about like after that long, you might sort of lose your sense of what's real and what's a dream, right? Like I mean, like with my son or kids in general, they often have more trouble distinguishing what's a dream and what's real. But if you're in a dream state that long, I think that would become the default state at some point and make it really hard to distinguish the dream reality when you first woke up. Yeah. And then okay, so let's talk about dreaming because you know, it, obviously there's the, the kind of analysis way we could go about like why it is that we visualize these certain things and what they mean for us. But just personally speaking, it seems like I work out a lot of weird things in my dreams that thank God exist in my dreams and not in person, right? Just embarrassing or violent things or what have you. Um, and also really wonderful things too. But 
it's very good for me, I think, psychologically, that that happens in the safe space of my imagination that it does like in a conversation with you right now. So is that is that true? Is that observable? I think, no, I think it's a good hypothesis. And I will I'll say the last um, meeting we had at the Santa Fe Institute on Sleep, one of the people gave a talk that I thought was really thought-provoking and interesting with the idea when we're sleeping and dreaming specifically, that we're basically exploring like a solution space for whatever problems we have, like whether it be an interpersonal problem, a mathematical problem, like whatever is like in your psyche that's important to deal with, you know, finding, you know, farming problem, anything. The idea is that you're able to explore this solution space while you dream. And like you say, and I think there's two things that one is you can explore scenarios you couldn't explore in a waking or, or wouldn't want to. One or two. <laughs> there's also, the theory this person put forward, which I think is, I find kind of compelling, is that our brain, you know, is able to do it more efficiently while we sleep. We like cut off off all our external stimuli coming in. So you're able to sort of like really focus maybe more brain power around just that problem, right? Like, it's just like if you are thinking really hard, I feel like I phase out the world around me some, even awake, but if you're asleep, like you really, really do. So you can devote all your resources to it. And the belief is like even more efficiently go through all the possible solutions. There's all these computer science methods. If you have a mathematical problem, you try to search through the space and it's very difficult and some are more efficient than others. And I think that our brain, not even the conscious part, like I think the subconscious part of our brain, we have trouble directly talking to is very good at that, right? I mean, animals yeah. had this long time before we were even like probably fully conscious. So I think it's part of our brain working things out and trying to communicate this away because it's not like indirect connection you know with our conscious brain somewhere. yeah it's like a consciousness counterfactual or like a mind laboratory and it's true the, the the stimulus bit is something that i hadn't considered but you know we are assaulted by stimuli in our waking life and so if we're you know putting energy metabolic energy towards navigating that and suddenly all of that disappears it's like our brains are bored they have to do something with all the energy and it, it seems like this is a cool kind of creative way to, to use it and in terms of the observable part i think it's hard to with our current methods, I think it's hard to um, be as quantitative about that. You know, list all these people who have solved problems in their sleep, and there's a lot, including science. Um, right, beautiful parsimony is physical theory just to come to you, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It is hard to like measure it, like put an EEG on somebody or MRI on somebody and measure it like, at this point. Yeah. Would you be willing to share a recent dream that you had so we can try to figure out what's going on <laughs> in your subconscious? I think one that I can share, let me see. I had a weird dream recently. I think I saw my son about like sort of in the middle of the night. And I told him the next morning, he dreams a lot. So I don't know things that happen. But I remember something like, I think I talked to him the night before about like um, volcanoes creating like land and like that's how like, land was created and cooled by the ocean. And in my dream somehow it was like, we were these huge beings who were like just dumping stuff in various parts of the ocean. They would like create like new continents. So it's like, you know, terraforming a planet by just dumping this like lava into it somehow, but it's not really volcano, but we're doing it to these huge beings. So that was a strange one. No, that's great. And thanks for sharing. Uh, kind of put you on the spot. I haven't talked about dreaming so much in the series, so it seems like a natural question. Do you have any interesting? Uh, I have like a, I have this recurring dream that's, uh, I mean, I'll share it. <laughs> it's a little silly. It's sort of a nightmare and I don't know. So I'm, I'm a young girl, I'm like seven or eight and I just got a brand new lunchbox for which I am like responsible. Like I will be in trouble if I lose this lunchbox. It's this burden of a responsibility on top of me. And I'm in the bus, but I fall asleep. 
And so when I wake up, it's like the bus is parked at the bus depot. So I'm confused and I leave and I'm trying to find an adult to help me. And I realize I leave my lunchbox in the bus. So I go back into the bus and when I turn around, (laughs) there's just like this army of platypi on the bus getting closer and closer to me. So I don't know what that's about. Like platypi, like are some of the um, biggest rim sleepers out there. So it's funny for a sleep. Really? But platypi, that's interesting. I mean, the whole thing is interesting. The platypi is is unusual. But I also have a lot of teeth dreams and I understand that's a super common thing. The fact that so many things sleep and so many things dream and humans dream about the same things, those strange universals are so curious to me. And that's kind of like, those are the patterns that you and your group are examining. Well, at least for the patterns of like, the amounts of time and what sleep is for. The, the kind cool. of complex perspective to sleep, trying to find these universalities and see what they, they tell us. I think that's a really cool way to look at it. I think it's a good question. I think it really illuminates what SFI is sort of about. It's a question that you don't think you need to ask, but as soon as you ask it, you're like, yeah, why do we sleep? I think that is like one of the great things about SFI is people sort of brainstorm more and are less inhibited, I think, to answer that context. And when you ask these basic questions, and exactly, you're like, you're like that's true. Like it's so obvious I've never asked it, but like it's it's really like a good question and not for you. So that's that's my favorite kind of question. Really. And it does this really great service to the mind of like you have to jettison all of your assumptions. Let's maybe transition into the even more speculative alien side. Have you seen mm-hmm. Stalker or read Roadside Picnic? I have not. No, that's okay. So I'm gonna explain what's happening behind me. This is an image of Stalker, and this essentially what happens is these individuals, three people, a writer, a professor, and a stalker enter into these zones. And for some reason, once they get to this sort of green wet space, they are compelled to lay down and sleep for a long time. And it's it's strange because you know that the zone is dangerous. You don't want to spend a lot of time in the zone, but for whatever reason, the zone forces you down. And maybe it's so that you dream because essentially they're on their way to this room and the room like grants your wish. And so maybe the, the point of the sleep is to get them to bring up to mind whatever their true intended wishes. I'm not sure that's a theory. It's an interesting thing that sleep plays so seriously in the zone in both the book and the film. So that's the link, I guess. So, okay, so now we'll ask you, this is a perilous place. You might end up sleeping in there for hours without knowing. Hopefully you don't lose your legs or something, but at the risk of imprisonment, personal injury, even death, what alien artifact or object would you hope to uncover from a zone like this? So I, I thought about it and I kind of like two things that came to mind that were kind of really, but, here, but here's my, my answer. You can, you can get two. You maybe have a super successful trip to the zone and you find two. <laughs> <things>. <laughs> I'll talk about the second one in relation to the first. Maybe I could get two, that'd be awesome. But the first one is, I would say, I would call it like an intention detector, an intention indicator, maybe more catchy. You know, there's lie detectors. We think the idea is like we do lie detectors to tell someone it's telling the truth, but in, which is useful. But in my view, you can actually say a lot of facts together that are true and still like totally mislead someone. Or you can actually get your facts pretty wrong and actually be telling a, a deeper truth. So I think that's not like always the heart of the matter, especially because of things like politicians or people who have nefarious intent. Not that all politicians do, some have good intent, but I just mean it's hard to tell sometimes. It'd be great if like there was something where you could do like know what their intention is like you know good bad hate love like you know, just read what the intention really is behind it yeah well i can say more about it but maybe i'll stop there if you want to yeah so i just want to hear i wrote it down just making sure that i heard you correctly you want to call it the intention indicator 
I think that's really good. I love it. I love that you can get prepared with the name. Yeah, and I think, you know, even beyond policy, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like experimentalism, like experiments that scientists do. Obviously you have to propose a hypothesis and your methods, but I wish there was something more like, I really want to find this, or like, I expect that this will go this way, but it would be so much cooler if it didn't for these reasons, like the intention driving the experiment itself. So yeah, please continue, tell us more. I didn't even think of the context of science that hard, but that does make, I mean, certainly scientists, when they come up with an idea, do you have like, I think this is true or not true. And just, you know, and, I, and for experiments it's true too. Like I've heard, I've heard, I mean, some experimentalists are very conscious about that. Cause I've had talked to others who are like, when I do an experiment, I just measure stuff. I don't have an hypothesis or an idea. And I'm like, that's, I don't even know how that's possible. Like, I don't think that is possible. <laughs> so, so it would be useful to have that for science as well. I'm under the impression that there's no such thing as a controlled experiment for this very reason. And so something like an intention indicator could almost be, it would almost like make quantifiable what that lack of control is. And then you could take that out and you would suddenly have like a controlled system to observe. It would be like revolutionary to scientific experimentation. It would be revolutionary. Like, cause at one level it's like, you know, I want to know is this politician or is this person at work, someone who I can trust their intentions are trying to mislead me. But you know, it's also true for your, for, and what you're getting at there with the science thing, I think is even deeper that, you know, you could use it for yourself, like use it as a way to like feedback therapy on there. So like, if you could read what your intentions are even deeper than your conscious level, because sometimes our conscious understanding or rationalization or interpretation of our own intentions yeah. is not really what our deeper level intentions are. Yeah. And if you could uh, get that feedback and <laughs> learn from it and compare it, as a scientist or just in your personal, I think that'd be super useful and fascinating. Yeah, and also like in terms of social communication, like, you know, my husband and I have arguments occasionally. It would be good if I had this intention indicator to say like, am I actually mad about this or do I just want to be right? Um, no, you're totally right. And I thought about that. I did think, I did think about that example. <laughs> and I think, uh, and it's true. Like you start to like, especially if you're like in a relationship and it's long-term and everything's happening. Sometimes you do just like get dug in to want to be right. And, you know, and it's, um, it would be good to have some feedback on that for yourself and probably. Yeah. Because I could imagine, like, you know, for example, you could say, I want a mind reader, so I know exactly what someone's thinking, or a history reader, so I know history. But I actually thought about that, too. I don't, I actually don't want to read someone's mind. Like, I don't need to know everything they're thinking. It's, like, too much information, and it's not really my business overall. And, like, yeah. maybe for my, like, you know, my partner, or for my closest friends, I want to know, like, why they feel certain things. But if it's, like, for the world, I don't really. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that's like, like a, a can of worms you don't want to stick your hand in. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. No, I thought about that too. In in past conversations where people have thought of items, there's been this sort of everyone's a lot of people have converged towards something like an empathy machine. Like, could I understand the context from which this individual is standing to help me understand what they're actually trying to communicate? Because of course, communication is imperfect. I like this better because that feels like a mind readery thing and it's kind of voyeuristic. Whereas this is just enough information for you to like process and compute and function with it's like the perfect limit that's my that's my thought about it exactly the mind reader thing it's like a lot of inventions like it sounds great but i do think it was a common practice for this yeah and this obviously seems like this intention indicator seems a little more peaceable than something like a mind reading machine like only the villains want to do that i'm not saying that past guests are villains <laughs> and they didn't say they wanted to read everybody's mind what do you think it looks like how would you how would you recognize it in the zone I think of it that, you know, your intentions are largely housed in your 
brain, maybe even the subconscious part. So it could be like, you know, some part, like a helmet you put on that does it. On the other hand, I mean, it is true, like our, you know, heart rate, our hormones, all kinds of things also indicate lots of feelings. So you could imagine, I mean, it'd be cool to have it if it could work, like a mood ring, but a mood ring that like has colors for your intention. So I think, I guess it's either a helmet is like the practical side of me thinking how I could really sense it. But you know, if I could just come up with anything, maybe like a ring that turns colors. Yeah, that's cool. Like a, a visual representation of what the intention might be. Of course, you hope that you would also discover the, the key, the legend. Um, okay, and you said you thought of a second thing that is sort of a consequence or additional to the intention indicator. Let's talk about that. So I thought it was like an emotion indicator, which isn't quite the same thing as an intention indicator. It's literally a mood ring. Exactly. So that would be literally a mood ring. Um, but I decided to get to the end. But the one interesting thing, so I, li I listened to your other past shows. And this, and just two things about a past example, like the last, or at least one of the last ones was Michael Lockman. Yeah. He was saying he wanted like a, basically something that would sense emotions for other animals. So you could compare to animals and see if their emotions are really different, which I think is fascinating. I think it's a cool, really cool idea to think about animal emotions and compare them to ours. Yeah. Although I'm not sure I agree with him. They're totally different than ours, which is part of why I'll talk about for a second. Great. Good. I think that animals, I mean, they do experience like, I mean, at least from everything I can possibly gather, fear, desire, excitement, caring, I would say. Um, and I think that those are sort of like the roots of most emotions. And we can, you know, I think depending on your culture side, you might have like a hundred things for emotions or five things for emotions. So it depends on how fine-grained you want to get and how subtle you want to get into it. But I think those are a basis for a lot of emotions. And that got me thinking about, I just, in the naming thing, I was trying to give good names for you. <laughs> so I thought about, you know, I think Michael's concern was that often we anthropomorphize, right? That we project our human characteristics onto animals, which certainly does happen a lot. Yeah. But then I started worrying about like the opposite in a what sense. And that's why I came with the words the opposite of anthropomorphizing. Maybe not very good. You can give me feedback. We often think humans are really, really special. Like we're we think really highly of ourselves. And like we think the earth's the center of the universe. We think we've been here since the beginning of time. We were the first organisms. We think we're specially ordained by God to be in charge. I mean, people believe this. Also in science, like, like this, I've had scientists who say only humans have real REM sleep or only like humans do this or do that in ways that I think are just not true. Like I think people often, even in science, want to like make humans special in some way that I just don't often find true. So I thought there should be like some word that's like the opposite of anthropomorphizing. Uh, so the word, so the word apotheosis means like, it's like the highest version or almost like the godly version of something or supreme version of something. And so it should be like, you know, anthropotheosis is my word. Like <laughs> it's making humans into the highest form that's always like the best in the godly version. And I almost was like an anti-anthropotheosis machine. <laughs> I teach us like, anti. we're not nearly as different and special as we think. I think it can be improved. I, you know, honestly, naming these is not my strong, it's not my strongest suit, but I'm working on it. No, but this, but I'm really glad that you did this because one, it's a, it's a thought exercise and like you're, you're safe. This is a safe space to throw words together, but it reminds me of what you said earlier about how some cultures have a hundred words for various emotions. Some have five. And this sort of came up in my conversation with Michael about the kind of semantic filter that uh, comes at the cost of true communication. Like if you don't have, if you're using a word differently than someone else, that's it. The message does not come across. And I was thinking about how 
This happens with color, apparently. You know, obviously I read a lot of classics and Homer describes the sky and the ocean as wine dark because there was no such thing as blue semantically. I love that. I do love that too, actually. I think that I also think that is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> so in order for this thing to come about or like for the, the Institute of Extraterrestrial Culture to glean the function of this object, you sort of have to invent it by name. Have you ever read Ted Chiang's short stories? Oh, I have a couple, I think, yes. Um, have you read 72 Letters? No, I haven't 72 Letters. I've recommended to everyone who's listening and to you, it's short and it's sweet, but it's exactly this, making these automata function in a certain way by inserting the proper name into them. It's a, it's a commentary on programming and artificial intelligence in general, but like that's how it works. You have to name them in order for them to do the thing that they're supposed to do. So I'm glad that you took this exercise as seriously as you did. <laughs> Thank you. I'll read 72 letters. I've read, read at least one, maybe even two of his and really like them. So I'll read 72 yeah. So obviously we can learn a little bit about this alien species that passed by our planet based on the fact that these items are left behind. What do you think they are using these devices for? That's a good question. I have to say like, I mean, I haven't, you know, read into it. So I don't know within the context of the full story. And I have to say, like, when it was described, like what came to my mind was almost like a junkyard, like a leftover after a party. Yeah. But they like put there to hang out. And these items of them are just like normal items. And they just like forget them sometimes and leave them around there. Like that's sort of like my initial thought reaction. That's precisely right. <laughs> right. So this is something that they possess, but perhaps take for granted and don't notice, like don't even miss when they're, you know, on their way to a better destination or something. What does that, that indicate? That something like an intention indicator is like superfluous. That's what, exactly, that's in my head how I was thinking about it. Although I do like the idea of some, you know, beneficent aliens coming to help us. Although then maybe they could just give it to us directly and not make it so uh, dangerous to get them. Well, this is the other thing. The fact that they chose to like have a party and litter, I think suggests that they think that we're pretty insignificant and that Earth is not all that special. It's a dump. It's a dump. I was going to say, which also made me think maybe that you wouldn't need the anti-apotheosis, anti-anthropotheosis machine because, um, Maybe seeing the aliens there and how insignificant they considered us would sort of get that message across even better. Maybe they right. But we could still employ it in what we believe is our significant experience. <laughs> right? We still think we're special because we anthropomorphize. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, this is something that we could use to better understand perhaps this alien species if they gave us the time of day. But I was thinking about thinking of alien life forms in general. And of course, Half the time I do that, I'm thinking about things that look like humans, but are green and gushy or something. But then, you know, you see these kind of scarier versions, which is essentially just a thing whose intention is to eat and survive. And therefore it seems evil to us because it wants to eat us and survive, but it's not malintended. It's just trying to grow. Right. Just like a lion or a tiger that, you know, might eat a lion than a human. Yeah, I know exactly what I agree so like maybe something, you know, let's say you're trapped on a ship with a very scary blob that's coming to eat you. At least you can, with the indica intention indicator, recognize like it, it's not personal. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> like, it's just predation. That's good. Have you had the three body problem in that trilogy of books? I haven't yet. No, I should. Um, Chichen Lu is on the list. We should, we should have, I should. <laughs> I don't know. You should, I mean, you've already done a lot of things I haven't read, but I wish I'd love to. But the, um, that book, I've only read the first one, but I made rise to now, so I should read the second one. But sort of that's the message of the, the first one is that, it, yeah, that like, you know, these aliens might consider us as like insects or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so this is an attempt to resolve the Fermi paradox, right? Is that correct? 
it is scientifically that's where it comes from, but it's a lot more. It is actually that's that's the, where the name comes from. What in the science of it? Okay, but it's like it's a lot deeper. It's a lot more to it. It's like a philosophical proposal. It's not right. like yeah. Okay, that's what I'm wondering because I think what I understand is that yeah, we could be insignificant like insects, or it's like they're so smart that they've just made themselves completely private in you know their ability to be perceived by others. Like they're better at it than we are. We project ourselves quite broadly, and we might not. Maybe that's singular to humanity. No, oh yeah, maybe that's a quite good question. I do think he was projecting himself a lot. I wonder how 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 human specific that is. Yeah, I mean, I guess we won't know until we stumble upon another intelligent species. <laughs> okay, so I want to ask what you would use this intention indicator for, aside from you know peacefully resolving domestic arguments or. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but so like now we have, let's say there are many of them and they get like kind of broadly distributed across the planet. What is your intention for the use of the intention indicator? I mean, I do have to say one of my initial uses would just be to like political or corporate interest to try to, you know, have people see where people are coming from. And, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, and I, and my belief is in some cases, like see that like the intention doesn't at all match the, the words being said and that might be enlightening to people and change the way they think about it, more working together in progress potentially, or you know, or just rejection of certain ideas or leaders kind of thing. What would you use it for? As a <laughs> and to learn about myself. Truthfully, yeah. it would be good to learn about myself. I think something like that, you know, uh, obviously I think a lot of people today in you know post-COVID vaccine time, post-political turmoil, are thinking about the proliferation of fake news or false news. And quite often that is done intentionally to misrepresent facts for like a, a, pers a, pers a purpose, excuse me. But sometimes there's just uh, an, an error in the way that something is reported. And so if you had a news story on your Twitter and you put intention indicator to it, you could say like, oh, this author meant well and just misrepresented this one fact, as opposed to, oh no, this author wants to uh, further a certain political agenda. Exactly, right? That that would be something. And then, as I said earlier, I like the idea of it being like a scientific hope hypothesis, uh, <laughs> right? Like, what do you actually, you know, you're building this machine or this invention uh, that serves a purpose, re uh, is, is worthy of funding. But like, what are you actually hoping that it does, right? What's the underlying motivation of the development of this project? I would like to know that those things. Because that's the other thing about science that's so interesting. You know this much better than I do because I'm not a practitioner, but there are certain sort of wiggly ways you have to present your work to the world because of the system through which you get funded, key uh, performance indicators and things like that. So maybe the, the intention indicator would, would illuminate what the kind of inspirational element of science is, which is more interesting to me. Actually, I think it's more interesting to a lot of people. Like I feel, I think it's, you're right that the reality is a lot of cases we have to present things in a certain way to get it across the field or funding agencies, things like that. But I often think like, you know, for example, for like a lot of the work I do, I often like do several scratch, like I do a scratch set of notes. Then I do a better set of notes that like, you know, gets rid of all the scribbles and the totally wrong ideas. Then I do like another set of notes to like check and really make sure that I'm, that I'm right. And then I, you know, eventually write it up into a paper those checks. And the final version is like a much more, professional field, you know, pleasing documents. But honestly, the handwritten notes are like a much more illuminating thing for the actual thought process. And for, and I, I was thinking it'd be even more compelling, like you say, like to just, you know, everyone, because you can see much more about how the thought process is, 
is working. So I always thought it'd be nice to have that, like the supplement information of papers, like you just upload your, your you know, barest raw set of notes on it. You know? I think that would be amazing. It reminds mm -hmm. me of, as someone who worked at SFI, I have the privilege to like sneak into working groups and eavesdrop about the, what's happening. And then as someone who's outside of SFI, you get the white paper that results from the meeting. And what you don't see is that the first two days are like 10 to 15 thinkers just scribbling on whiteboards and erasing stuff and crumpling up papers. That's where, it, that's where the magic of the process starts. And I think, exactly. And, I, and on one hand you say, well, you worried about the results, not all the, you know, I've heard people say, for example, um, science is like making sausages. You, don't, you just want to eat the good sausage. You don't, you don't know what into making it. On the other hand, I think you're right, though. I think that is the magic part. I think in terms of being compelling or intriguing to like a broader audience, I think that is the magic part. And so it'd be good for people to see that. Right. But then the counter to that, of course, is that the best ideas sort of emerge in the private space of like a closed room. And so it's possible that not everyone in the room would agree that they would like to upload their scribbles. People don't even share their slides occasionally, you know, so oh, that's really true. there is this trade-off. For researchers that, yeah, that's absolutely true. I agree. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm just like a voyeur. I'm like a science voyeur. I just want to see behind the scenes, but that's not necessarily the best thing to do in service to the science itself. Okay. I have one closing question. This is a new question that I'm hoping to employ. And it occurred to me that like literature and film and visual art, music is a really cool medium through which people can come to understand each other, what they choose to share. And so this is the weird way that I'm framing it. As you're psyching yourself up to go into the zone in service to succeeding by getting in and out safely, what's the song that you're playing to pump you up and get you motivated? It's like the most important workout of your life. What's the song that you would be playing to succeed? <laughs> That's interesting. So, you know, I mean, there's two ways to approach that. I think what I would honestly do, my issue is I usually get too amped up and excited, right? So usually I'm trying to like calm myself down to like being clear. So, I mean, for example, you know, just things I've listened to in the past 24 hours. There's a song, I think it's called Kinder Music. Um, true, it's the True Romance soundtrack. It's by Hans Zimmer. And uh, I find that one just really peaceful somehow. I think I know exactly or what song you're talking about. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. Or there's, um like I just randomly today listened to like Don't Look Back in Anger by Oasis, which also I find kind of like, um, somehow but the opposite side would be like i need to be as aggressive and up as possible and what music should i listen to for that like the first thing that's come to mind are like some guns and roses or metallica like guns and roses like you know you could be mine or welcome to the jungle like yeah i it's funny because i just have it in my mind that i was thinking like a metallica like a hard that kind of a thing when i posed the question but you're so right you know these stalkers have to be extremely careful they have to kind of plot their steps so that they don't get into a, a mire bog and they're stuck there forever so the idea of having something that kind of laser focuses your uh, pursuit is probably more in service to success than like drums and electric guitar <laughs> for me it is usually like stuff that's like actually calming me down and mellowing me out but i like that question like maybe it's like you do the focused inspiring kind of mental music on the way in and then once you have the object it's metallica on the way out yeah right? that's true exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly that's true yeah that's great awesome <laughs> well thank you so much for taking that on and for both of your objects the intention indicator <laughs> and the anti-anthropotheosis machine. That's perfect. Yeah, you pronounce it better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and yeah, thank you for taking the time to spend this hour with me. It's really nice to see you. For people who are listening, Van and I are actually close friends. We used to hang out in person a lot more than we get to now, but it's very nice to see you. And Great you're safely you. out. You are free.
I'm I'm happy that I am, and I hope that I can walk about and see you more in the future again. Yeah, and now that everything's kind of reopening up, I'm pretty sure that we'll be doing well. We'll be doing time meetings together, obviously. So more sleeping, more talking, uh, less dangerous forays into alien crash sites. Yeah. Okay. Bye, man. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Yeah. Okay, thank you all for listening to the show once again. If you'd like to watch the video version of this interview, read transcripts or show notes, peruse our bonus materials, or visit past episodes, you can do all of that by visiting aliencrashsite.org. Alien Crash Site is a part of Santa Fe Institute's Interplanetary Project. If you like what you're hearing, whether it's the podcast itself or the science discussed within the podcast, please consider giving a gift of any size to the Santa Fe Institute by visiting santafe.edu give. And join us next time when Catherine Collins, head of sustainable investing at Putnam Investments, seeks out her ideal extraterrestrial object. Until then, stay safe.